And Lord, may that be our prayer each and every day, each and every minute of our life, that it would be you working through us. It would be Christ in us and not ourselves. We thank you. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Go ahead and take a seat. I want to reiterate briefly uh, what Deanna said and about that video and just how much I value uh, the fellowship that we're a part of. We don't talk about it very much here. We don't uh, bring up the fact that we're part of a larger group of churches, but it is reassuring uh, as, a, as a minister, as a pastor, to know there's others around us who, uh, who believe the same, who uh, work together, and we have this network. And, uh, and Feb Central, is specifically our region, is... Uh, has been really working diligently the last, you know, 15 years to support the churches uh, in Ontario and English-speaking Quebec. And so I'm looking forward to, there actually are three more videos we're going to watch over the coming weeks um, as we celebrate as a fellowship 70 years together. Now, this church is older than that. This church goes back to the 1800s and, uh, and has a very rich history and is very much a part of the development of the fellowship. And so uh, we, uh, we can cherish those, those stories and those memories. But uh, let me just reiterate how wonderful I think the fellowship is that we're part of. Now, I want to start this morning with what I hope is a very obvious statement. All right? I hope you agree with me on this, but there is a difference between being a Christian by tradition or by default and choosing to be a Christian. I, I, I assume you would agree with that statement, right? There's a difference there, right? What I mean is, for instance, a Christian by default, a Christian by tradition means maybe you were born into a Christian family. You grew up going to church. Uh, maybe you tick off Christian on your census every four years. The problem with being a Christian by default is that you end up having this surface level belief, right? Just below the surface. Almost like, you know, the, the pastor said this, so I, I have no reason to not believe it, so I will, I will follow that. But there's no real uh, support. You can't back it up with scripture. You don't know why you believe what you believe. It also leads to a surface level commitment. And this is the one that's a little bit more dangerous. In other words, when life is going well, you're happy to be a Christian. But when life gets difficult, your faith fades away. Maybe it's a loss of a job, a broken relationship, or maybe it's a diagnosis that uh, is going to be life-altering. All of a sudden, your commitment to Jesus is gone. We might call that easy believism see, choosing Jesus is markedly different, right? It's an all-in, heart-level belief, right? The Bible says this, I believe it. You can defend it. Which reminds me, there used to be an old saying, and I don't think I hear it, I don't hear it very much anymore, but the old saying was this, the Bible says it, I believe it, that settles it. And I don't agree with that statement. The Bible says it, that settles it, I believe it. Now, that one I can cling to. Because the Bible says that I, can, I, will, I will believe it, because the Bible has settled it already. So it has an all-in heart-level belief, but it also has a, an all-in heart-level commitment when you are someone who's choosing Jesus. You know, when you're a Christian by default and something happens to you in your life, you, you might ask the question, why me? But when you have chosen Jesus to follow him, you have this all-in heart-level commitment. The, the question you ask is, why not me? Why not? Why shouldn't this happen to me? 
And in reality, in that situation, your belief gets strengthened because you've expected hardship. You've chosen to count the cost of following Christ. I mean, we're told we are like aliens living in a foreign land. And so over the next few months, until just after Easter, we're going to continue to walk through the Gospel of Luke like we started in our Christmas series in December. And we're going to take a look at what it means to choose Jesus. To choose Jesus. Not just once, but each and every day of our life. We're going to look at what Jesus did, what Jesus taught, what he expects of us as followers. And I really hope that through this, it helps you answer one short but big question. And that is, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? And, and when, you have, when you answer that question, it affects how you're going to live. I'm hoping that you can choose Jesus for the first time, or you can, you're more um, encouraged and, and emboldened to choose Jesus day after day. It's interesting, you stop and think about the life of Jesus. He didn't come to this earth to amass a large following of people. He, he could have done that. He had groups following him, crowds following him, but he actually would often send them away. I mean, he, yes, he came ultimately to, to die on the cross for our sins, but he didn't come to amass a large following, but he did work to make disciples who make disciples who make disciples. And each one of us, in some way, is a benefactor of that. And there comes a point in time in each of our lives where we have to choose Jesus for ourselves and choose to know who he is and what that means for us. And see, if you choose and decide that Jesus is nothing more than a, a good teacher, you'll live one way. But if you choose Jesus understanding that he is the son of God, the one who came to make a way for you, you're gonna live in an entirely different way. So my hope, my prayer in this series is that by the end of it, you have no shadow of a doubt that Jesus is Lord and that you will choose Jesus. So I said we're going to be going through Luke uh, over these months, and maybe you might say, well, why Luke? Well, the only good answer I have is why not Luke? Well, the reality is Luke is, so Luke, the author of this book, is, is a doctor, and uh, he set out to actually create this orderly account for someone named Theophilus. Now, we're not sure if Theophilus himself, we find these in, in the opening verses of, of the, the book, but we're not sure if Theophilus is a real person or just a name he's assigned to someone or if it's a group of people. But the reality is Luke has set out to find eyewitnesses to actually take all the accounts of Jesus and find the veracity in them. Uh, one scholar put it this way. He said, Luke has an apologetic and an evangelistic purpose to present Jesus in a way that any reader might accept him as Messiah, Lord, and Savior. And I think he gets this from verse four of chapter one, where it says, he's talking about writing this orderly account. He says that you may have certainty concerning the things you've been taught. So this Theophilus, if he's a real person or or it's the group of people have been taught about Jesus. They've heard about Jesus. Maybe they were even Christ followers, but Luke wants to confirm for them that they are certain concerning the things that they've been taught. And so Luke has this apologetic and evangelistic purpose. You could just almost summarize it saying Luke wants to write to help you choose Jesus. 
And as we jump in partway through the book, we remember back in December, we looked at this, this book, the first two chapters of Luke in our Christmas series, The Awe of Christmas. And, and when we look between that and where we are today, there's not a whole lot we know about Jesus's growing up years, right? We, we've got the birth stories, and then we almost jump to when he's 30 years old. There's only really one story we have in the book of Luke, and that's when he's 12. Mary and Joseph and Jesus were, were in, in Jerusalem for, uh, for the festival, and they were heading home. And it was two, three days into their journey home. Mary and Joseph were like, um, have you seen Jesus? Uh, no, I thought he was with you, or I thought you knew where he was. But they turn back, and they go back, and where do they find him? Well, well they find him in the temple, in the temple, and he's sitting, he's listening. He's learning, he's asking questions. Which leads to a question that I ponder, but I'm sad to think I probably will never have a real good answer. And that is, what did Jesus know as God, and what did he have to learn as man? And I ask that question because of Luke 2.52, right? Where, where it says, Jesus increased in wisdom, in stature, in favor with God and man. He had to increase in wisdom, so he wasn't born knowing everything as a man. Have you ever thought about that? He had to learn just like you and I have to learn. And, and so I, I ponder that sometimes, and sadly, I wish I could have an answer as to what, the, what he did know. I don't, and I don't think I ever really will have a full answer on that. But the reality is, he's growing, he's learning, he's experiencing life just like you and I do. And then we find, again, jumping quickly through this little interim period, John the Baptist, his cousin, his forerunner, begins his ministry, and here he is out in the desert, in the wilderness, calling people to repentance, calling Jews back to the Lord. He's baptizing them for repentance, he's calling out frauds, right, calls them a brood of vipers, and John makes it very clear that he is not the Messiah. Some people wondered if he was the Messiah. He's not the Messiah. He made it very clear, I'm not even worthy to untie the sandals of him who's going to come after me. And then Jesus comes up to him while he's baptizing and says, I need to be baptized. And John sort of pushes back, says, no, no, you don't need to be baptized by me. I need to be baptized by you. And Jesus says, no, no, this is what needs to happen. I need to be baptized. And as Jesus is baptized, we hear a voice from heaven, God the Father saying, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. And then the Holy Spirit comes down on him like in the form of a dove. He's affirmed by the Father and he's supported by the Spirit. This idea of baptism that we often will, will have here in, at James North is one of those acts we do that shows the world that we are choosing Jesus choosing to submit to him, choosing to follow him. And you know, like often after a baptism, if you've, if you've been here for them, you, you'll hear someone pray for protection for that person. Because after that spiritual high, our enemy, the devil, would like to come and do nothing more than knock you off that little, that little mountain you're on. Make you question what you've really done, if that's really the thing you should do. He wants to know if you're gonna stay true or are you going to throw in the towel? And the reality is that becoming a Christian, choosing Jesus, does not mean a walk in the park. That's not an easy road to, to walk. Unfortunately, we have this idea that if, if, we come to, if we come to Christ, 
everything will just fall into place. Everything will be wonderful and rosy. And that's not the case. It's actually, it's the opposite that's true. See, choosing Jesus means expecting to face and fight temptations of the enemy. It's gonna happen when you choose Jesus. And we all face these temptations each and every day. But we have to decide if we're gonna fight or if we're gonna just surrender to those temptations. And really, the tempting of the devil is nothing new. Satan's been doing it for millennia. And every temptation has the same basic strategy, right? The first thing he does, he lays out the bait. He casts that hook. And he knows, he knows people like an outdoorsman knows fish. Satan knows our habits. He knows our hangouts. He knows what, what appeals to us. And he drops a tailor-made lure just for you. And then he makes an appeal. Because Satan can't make you take a bite, but he makes it so appealing You see that flashy lure. The question is, are we going to linger over it? Are we going to rationalize it? Are we going to think about it and toy with it? And that's when the struggle begins, or not. And we can often see the lure, and we can even know that this is not a good thing. That it's something we should run away from. And yet it seems so tantalizing, so delicious. We have to decide what we're going to do. Are we going to fight or flight or freeze. And the temptation ends with our response. If we freeze, we're probably going to be stuck thinking about it, running it over in our mind, obsessing over the bait. And the longer we linger, the more likely we will to, to take, the, take the, fight, the bait and give in. If we, fl- if we choose flight, if we run away, we get ourselves away from that temptation in the moment, we haven't really dealt with it. But when we fight, We show the devil that we mean business. Now, this isn't something new, like I said. He's been doing this for millennia. He's been, since the very beginning of time, right? Even in the the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve, the very first sin, Satan used this strategy. He he came in and said to to Adam and Eve, like, "Did, did God really say... He's been tempting us ever since. But there's something reassuring in all of this. Jesus knows exactly what you're going through. He's been there. He's experienced the temptation himself. The difference is that he won every single time. And that leads us to our passage for today, which is Luke chapter 4, Uh, verses 1 to 13. If you have your Bible, open to Luke chapter 4, and we're going to look at the temptation of Jesus. This is kind of widely held to be like Jesus's training for his ministry years. I mean, if you remember, if you ever saw the old, old movie Rocky, this is the training montage when Rocky's like running up the stairs in Philadelphia or, or, you know, shadow boxing the side of beef in the freezer. But Jesus, this is his training for his ministry years. So imagine this, Jesus gets baptized, right? That significant step in in his spiritual journey. And and this isn't a new thing. I mean, Old Testament has all these talking about about ritual cleansings in in what they they call a mikvah. It's like an ongoing baptism for cleansing, a very important part of the Jewish life. But Jesus gets baptized. He's on this mountaintop 
uh, sensation, right? Remembering the, the affirmation of his father, the, you know, I, this is my son whom I'm well pleased. And then we start with this in verse one. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil, and he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. Jesus goes from spiritually filled to physically drained. I mean, one thing that Katie and I have learned over our 25 years of marriage is that um, tired and hungry, it's not a good combo for me. Maybe you're the same, but it's not a good combo for me. And here's Jesus in the wilderness. He's alone. He's going to be tired. He's going to be hungry. His defenses could be down. This is when the devil comes to tempt him. When we talk about the, the wilderness and being there for 40 days, it should remind us of the Israelites and their journey through the wilderness for the 40 years from Egypt to the promised land. And even the fact that he's hungry should remind us of the fact of, of when they were hungry and they complained to Moses. They, they, they felt like they were better off in Egypt as slaves. Remember all the, all the meat and bread we had? I don't know they had that much meat and bread, but they remembered it as being just so full of, of meat and bread. But they believed in that moment that the Lord had brought them out of Egypt in order to kill them by hunger. So this should remind us of that story. And the fact that Jesus is fasting for these 40 days. Now, I can't speak from experience, but 40 days without food will cause certain things to happen to your body and mind. I mean, phys physiologically, right? Dehydration, fatigue, dizziness, headaches, hungers, hunger. You're not going to be at your best when you're in this kind of a situation. And of course, Luke tells us he was hungry. Now, it seems like a strange comment. It seems pretty obvious to, to us that after 40 days of fasting, he would be hungry. But Luke actually does this quite a bit where he gives us a piece of information that seems somewhat innocuous, but he's actually answering questions before they're raised. See, someone could surmise if it didn't say this, that, you know, well, Jesus is God, and so God could go 40 days without food. There's no big deal about that. But see, Jesus isn't doing this in his deity, he's doing this in his manhood. And so to tell us that he is hungry says to us, he's doing this and he's experiencing this like we do. There's no denying the fact that this lack of food would affect him. We also often assume that this idea of him being tempted happened right at the end of this 40 days. And it very well could be. I mean, Matthew puts it in the sense that after this temptation's over, angels come and minister to Jesus. But we also assume that this is the only temptation he faced, these three. But reality is he likely had suffered more than this through these 40 days. And we know that ongoing throughout his ministry, there are times when people are bringing him ideas and he's being tempted throughout his ministry years. And as the devil comes to Jesus in this state, we move on to verse three. The devil said to him, if you are the son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. So Satan comes and he sort of tries to set up Jesus, right? If you are the son of God, 
which really could be more like since you are the son of God or, or in light of the fact that you are the son of God is really more of an affirmation because the devil knows who Jesus is. Jesus knows who he is. And in fact, these two would have been well acquainted. If you think about this, first of all, the devil's a created being. Like Jesus created him. And also we find that even back in Job, Job chapter one, we find it says there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord and Satan also came among them. And then the whole book of Job is all about the testing that, that Satan puts Job through. And through all of that, Job chooses Yahweh, chooses God. So this isn't meant to be in a question of the existence of God. This is more a question of can God be trusted? The reality is this temptation really isn't a temptation unless he really is the son of God. I mean, even if I was to be able to go 40 days without food and had the temptation to turn a stone to bread, I can't do that. So it really is no temptation to me. I'd be tempted to want the bread, but I know that I couldn't actually do that. This temptation is a temptation of the lust of the flesh. A temptation to just do it yourself. I mean, really, think about it. Turning this bread, the stone to bread is, is really not going to hurt anything. Right? It's, it's not, there's no laws against it. Jesus could do it, right? He's the creator. He, he was the one who, who would have sent the manna in the desert. But here, what Satan's trying to do is trying to suggest that there's something wrong with the Father's love for him. Because well, why, if you're the son of God, like, why are you still hungry? Why isn't he feeding you? And so the, the issue with succumbing to this temptation for Jesus is that he would be disobeying his Father's will. He'd be using his divine power for his own purpose. Now, for us, this is... This is like when we get tempted to do things which, which are good, but when they're used in their proper context. Think about food and, and drink and sex and comfort and all those type of things. Those are good things in the right context. But when they're used where they're not supposed to be used, they're sin. And the temptation gets us because Technically, these things aren't wrong. But John Piper puts it this way. He says, the way this temptation gets its power is by persuading me to believe that I will be happier if I follow it. The power of all temptation is the prospect that it will make me happier. Have you ever found that? You, you see something before you and you think, it's going to make me happier if I could just do that. It's going to make everything just right but it ends up making you feel regret. See, the devil doesn't play fair. He entices us with this, this lure, this shiny object. But as soon as you give into it, he starts accusing and pointing and saying, what a failure you are. You know, surely God can't love you now. But it doesn't have to be that way. See, Jesus doesn't freeze. He doesn't flee he fights. And actually, what he, how he fights is he quotes from Deuteronomy. In this por portion of Deuteronomy, he's quoting is Deuteronomy chapter 8, where, where we have um, 
Moses reminding the people of how God had provided for them in their wilderness journey. I mean, the book of Deuteronomy really is Moses' last sermon before the people go into the promised land and Moses goes up the mountain to die. <clears throat> and he reminds them that how God had humbled them and, and let them get hungry and then fed them. He provided for them. Man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. It's like Jesus is saying, food schmood. Like, I don't need it. <clears throat> food is fine, but it's more important to follow God's will. And this isn't an either-or prioritization. Like right now, the Father has willed that he fast. The Father has told him, and the Spirit has led him to do this. And in each of the three temptations we're going to look at, Jesus uses Scripture to rebuff Satan. Because the use of scripture reminds us that we, we want to be known as people of the book, people who study and follow the Bible. But really, it's not about how much of the Bible you know, but how much do you apply to your life. You could read it all the time, but if you never apply it, it's not really being very helpful to you. So Jesus quoted scripture, right? That's the knowledge of what the scripture says. But then he wasn't going to give in to the to the the lust of the flesh to the fresh bread because the father had said not yet that's applying the scripture to his life and he doesn't let the circumstances dictate what he's going to do he decided ahead of time he's going to follow the lord's will it's difficult sometimes we just want to move forward plow ahead we want to get that meal there's times we have to wait on the Lord. It reminds me of Psalm 27, 14. Wait for the Lord. Be strong. Let your heart take courage and wait for the Lord. Anytime I've waited, it becomes apparent later how much better the outcome is than what I had anticipated, than what I was going to plan to do. The Lord always does things better than we can. And so we wait on the Lord. Move into the second temptation. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, to you I will give all this authority and their glory for it has been delivered to me and I will give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only you shall serve. The first question I have in this temptation is, does, does the devil really have the authority to give away this authority? Is it really his? I mean, the reality is, for Jesus, it's going to be all his eventually anyways. But what Satan's offering here is the kingdom without the cross. The authority without the struggle. But see, the crown without the cross would be merely a political power. There would be no forgiveness of sin. This is a temptation for the lust for power. A temptation just to take the easy way. And again, Jesus fights back with Scripture. 
Again, he's from Deuteronomy. He says, it is the, Deuteronomy 6, it says, it is the Lord your God you shall fear. Him you shall serve, and by his name you shall swear. Moses is reminding the Israelites here of, of how they're going to enter into this promised land. And they're going to move into and live in homes they didn't build. They're going to be the benef- beneficiaries of crops that they didn't plant. Remember that in, in this, it's a gift from the Lord. Remember him. Don't forget the Lord. And this, this can be an issue within the church as well. Now, I haven't seen this here, but sometimes people in the church get this lust for power. They, they want to be an elder. They want to be a pastor. They want to be a leader because they want the authority that comes with it. But see, with that authority comes responsibility. And, and really, any authority any of us have is limited. The elders, the pastors of the church, we don't have ultimate authority. In fact, the New Testament encourages a plurality of elders. So even if one of the elders or two of the elders kind of go off the rails, there's others to call them back to the Lord. Call them back to the purpose to serve the Lord, to not serve self. And one thing I've found is some of the times the best qualified leaders are the ones who don't think they're qualified. Not always, but sometimes. These are the ones who are happy to serve, and they actually understand not just the authority, but they understand their responsibility. But in life, how often do we look for that path of least resistance? We want to bypass the cross, the struggle. We want to get the kingdom. We want the easy button. We want to avoid the pain for ourselves, for our kids, for those around us. These could be questions that we might have, like, like why am I giving so much to the church when, when, when I could use that money for myself? I mean, really, I, I deserve to be happy, don't I? We want to get that least resistance by being the one in charge, the one with the authority, the temptation of power. But Jesus, Jesus reminds us it's all a gift from God. And, and it's nothing that we have done. I mean, later on in his ministry, he institutes the church. And, and I love what he says. He says that he will build his church. That's a huge relief for me. It's not on me to make fruit. It's my responsibility to, to lead this church and with the elders in the way that we feel God's calling us. But any fruit... The glory goes to God. The glory goes to Jesus. He is building his church. We want to be aware of the, the temptation of the lust for power. And it goes on, and he took him to Jerusalem, set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Gee, the, the devil takes Jesus to the pinnacle of the temple, to, to the, the heart of the Jewish culture and life. And you have to understand, there's one point we're wondering if this is the, the corner, but there's a corner of the temple that is just overlooking the Kidron Valley. 
450 feet to the bottom. That's a big drop. And then the devil says, Jesus, just, just throw yourself off. After all, doesn't the scripture say? Satan uses the Bible in this temptation. He's quoting from Psalm 91, where it says, on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. You know, if you're really the son of God, Jesus, like if you jumped off, your father's gonna have to save you and protect you. And really, you think about that, there's a lesson to be learned about this. Satan is quoting scripture. So just because someone quotes scripture doesn't mean they're authentic, right? It is very easy to use scripture to your own purposes, for your own devices. We can twist it. We can make it say what it doesn't mean. Honestly, I hope you don't take what I say for granted. I mean, I want you to go home and say, did the Bible really say what Dave said? Like, please do that. Don't take my word for it. What does scripture say? But even think about the positive outcomes of this potential temptation. If Jesus gives in, he jumps. The father sends angels to protect him. It will have confirmed for Jesus that he really is the Messiah. And it will have enlightened those who are around to watch it that this must be the Messiah. Look what the father, what Yahweh has done and saved him. But see, this is one of the dangers of the temptation. We, we become very good at rationalizing all the positives. And, well, this could be a good thing for us. But the fact is, giving into this temptation for the wrong reason at the wrong time is sin. This is the temptation to put God to the test. In other words, don't believe it until you see it. We do this in our own lives. Like for parents, it's like for us as parents, we, we, we don't prioritize corporate worship together with the church, but then we expect God to keep our kids on the right path. It's like eating garbage for a week, but then praying that God would just make you healthy. Praying that, you know, the Big Mac would turn to carrots on the way down. It's in knowing you've got a problem with alcohol, but still going to a bar on Friday night and praying that God would keep you sober. It's putting yourselves in places you're prone to sin and then asking God to help you. If there's a trap on a particular street that you can't fight and can't win, go down another street. Go away from that. Don't go there. Don't put the Lord to the test. And again, Jesus' response is from Deuteronomy 6. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested him at Massa. And that's in reference to Exodus 17. The people are grumbling for water in the wilderness. Moses accused them of testing the Lord. They, they weren't believing the Lord had good intentions for them. They weren't believing that the Lord would take care of them. We're not to test the Lord except in one thing. There's one area recorded in Scripture that we are encouraged to test the Lord. Did you know that? Malachi chapter 3, verse 10. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. 
If I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. I mean, when we think about giving to the church, it's good to remember that what we're giving is actually a portion of what God's given to us. And, and is it really ours in the first place? And God says, you need to support my work. You need to do that. And if you don't think I'll take care of you, just, just try me. Jesus knows and he understands what it will mean for him if he jumps from the pinnacle of the temple. He knows this is completely contrary to the word of God. Each and every time, Jesus fights the temptation with scripture. And this, is, this finishes with verse 13. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. Jesus fought, and the devil fleed. But notice, he's not done. Jesus won this battle, but Satan's going to come back. In many ways, the life of Jesus is a model for how we can live. Especially in this. Again, we, we might get caught up in the idea that Jesus is God. Of course he won the temptation. He beat, he beat the devil. But what's reassuring for me and maybe hopefully for you is we're told in Hebrews 4, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. And that's reassuring. Our high priest, our savior, isn't just a God who expects things from us. He's lived it. He's walked this earth. He's faced the same temptations as us, yet without sin. We'll find ourselves in these times of testing, these times of temptation, for sure. We can remember that Christ has been there. He's been through it with before us. I want to leave us with a few lessons we can learn and should be aware of when it comes to temptation. The first thing is this. We need to be aware of the schemes of Satan. I mean, Satan is very real. He's not imaginary. But don't confuse him as, a, as an equal an opposite to God. He is not an equal to God. The devil is a creation. He is not everywhere at all times and does not have all power. He is in one place at one time. The thing is, is he's been doing this tempting for millennia. He knows how people tick. He knows what to do to get you. I'd caution you that the devil's not behind every rock, right? Everything that happens to you is not because of the devil. And the reality is, because he can only be at one place at one time, you've never actually probably fight, faced Satan yourself directly. But he has his minions. He has his other angels. Don't give him too much credit. He can't do a lot of things. 
And also, remember, if you blame Satan for the sin you commit, all you're doing is trying to blame, uh, shift the blame. You're trying to take the onus off yourself. It's not my fault. The devil made me do it. We bear the responsibility. We are the ones who are culpable for our own sin. We want to understand the schemes of Satan. The first thing is that Satan knows when to strike. He knows when you're at your weakest. He knows when you're the most vulnerable. Beware in those times. Do you know yourself where you're most vulnerable? Be aware of that. It's important to understand where you're prone to fall. Avoid the situation. Be on guard. Be extra vigilant. In his schemes, Satan subtly mixes truth with lies. I mean, there's an old saying, there's a little bit of truth in everything, even in Satan's temptations. He makes it sound like this is actually a good thing. Sounds like truth, sounds like a good idea, but just beneath the surface is the actual truth. Later on in his ministry, Jesus teaches a group of Jews that Satan is a liar and the father of lies. So even in the truth, he's still lying. When he speaks the truth, it's a lie. And one of the biggest lies he offers is that pleasure. He offers pleasure and conceals the pain. Satan promises pleasure but conceals the pain. He dangles that supposed happiness in front of you. The happiness you could be experiencing right now. But he fails to tell you about the physical consequences, the natural consequences of your sin. Even more so, he tries to hide that. It even is sin. He'll attempt to greet us or get us to meet legitimate needs in illegitimate ways, right? We talked about that with food and drink and sex and comfort. All those temptations, which are really good and right. Food when Jesus was hungry. The, the kingship of a kingdom the care and protection of the Father, all these good things. But he wanted him to do it in illegitimate ways, taking matters into our own hands. So be aware of the schemes of Satan, but then we also need to bow down before the superiority of the Son of God. At his baptism, the Father said, you are my beloved Son, in you I am well pleased. See, Jesus was pleasing to the Father because he had committed to the Father's kingdom agenda to live in total obedience to the Father, in total uh, de dependence on the Holy Spirit. Jesus was victorious over every temptation he faced. So even in his humanity, we should bow down to him, not to mention his deity, his death on the cross for our own salvation. Now the third thing is this, we must be armed with God's strategies for the saints. Jesus models those strategies for us here. When it comes to facing the temptations of the evil ones, spend a lot of time with God. Jesus was gone away into the wilderness for 40 days, solitude with the Father, with the Spirit. And numerous times through his ministry, he goes off to a quiet place by himself to pray. I mean, we, we think, well, this is God. Why does he need to go pray? He's praying to himself. But in his humanity, he needed to go and spend that time with the Father to commune with him. Spend a lot of time with God. Expect to be tempted, especially after a victory. 
So this temptation came right after his baptism, right? That spiritual high. A time in, in, the, in his life when things should have been good. So be especially aware after those seasons where things are going really well. When, when you're on a spiritual high, this, the evil one's going to come and get, try to get you. Rely on the Holy Spirit. Now, are you aware of the work of the Spirit in your life? The things he's doing? How he's working in your sanctification? Remember, like, you work at your sanctification and the Spirit works at your sanctification. You have, like, a partnership you have together. You do your part. He does his part. Are you aware of that? How is he working in you? Rely on the Spirit, just like Jesus did. And then just like Jesus, know and use Scripture. Rebuff the devil by using God's word. How well do you know what the Bible says about the temptations you face? Do you know what the Bible says about it? Especially if you have a fight that you seem to keep battling and keep fighting. What does the Bible say about that one specifically? Read it. Know it. Memorize it. Repeat it. And then be on guard for further attacks. In verse 13 told us that Jesus won the battle this time, but, the, but Satan was coming back at an opportune time. The same is true for us. We will fight, and we can win in the moment. But it won't be the last time. We need to come back and fight that again. It's been said that in the life of a Christian, there's three ongo- ongoing phases, right? You're always in one of these phases in life. You're in a time of testing, You're coming out of a time of testing or you're about to enter a time of testing. Be aware of that. The fact that you are aware that, you know what, I I gotta be aware of of the evil one, of our enemy. He's coming to attack. He's gonna tempt me when I'm least expecting it. So start expecting it. Rely on the spirit for that. Choosing Jesus means choosing to face and fight temptation. We, we don't get away from that. We don't get rid of that. Be aware of that. And Jesus is our savior. He's the one who went to the cross for us. And he is our God, but he also experienced and lived the life you're living. He knows what you're going through. He knows the temptations you face. Let that be reassuring to you. Seek him. Choose Jesus. Let's pray. Our God and our Father, again, we thank you for this time. We can come together. We can lift our songs of praise to you. We can bring our prayer requests to you, and that we can actually look into your word to see what you have to say to us and for us. God, it's so reassuring for us knowing that our Savior, Jesus, has faced the temptations that we face. He knows exactly what we're going through and he's been there. We praise you because he faced those temptations and won every single time. And because Jesus was sinless, he could go to the cross for us in our place. Take the punishment that we deserve that we can actually accept that and look forward to living forever with him in his rightful kingdom on his rightful throne. So God, we thank you. We praise you for this in Jesus' name. Amen.